one, one of the great moments for me was to preach in uh, Providence Baptist Church uh, uh, some years ago when, when just, I think it was 19 people were getting baptized that morning. Uh, I'm not sure what we're doing with our time, but just to help people get a picture. Ottie, tell us a little bit about Providence Baptist Church. Well, give us a picture. Um, It's so good to be here again, and uh, I would like to bring you greetings from Providence Baptist Church, from everybody there, and uh, from Sorin uh, Badragan, who is uh, my colleague there uh, in ministry, and he holds the fort right now uh, while uh, we are away. Uh, Our our church um, um, is now um, um, in in this uh, southern part of Bucharest, in a a poorer area, and uh, as Uh, All of you know we have this ministry to the Roma people. One of the things which we have tried to achieve with less success, and this is an issue for prayer, was to start a Roma church. We had about three attempts, and at one point each of these attempts uh, went better and better, and then uh, it kind of folded, because I really think there needs to be a Roma person who does this. And another challenge for our church uh, uh, in more recent years has been... uh, the massive exodus of uh, young people. You know, um, since Romania has joined the European Union, traveling around Europe is without visa, and I think everybody was afraid that we'll have an invasion of Romanians here, but frankly speaking, this is too cold and too rainy for us. So, <laughs> <laughs> so most Romanians have gone to Spain and to Italy, about, uh, and the language is closer, about uh, two to three million, which represents 10% of the population. And this has affected churches, uh, has affected everybody because it's mostly young people. There are some even in in this country, and in in London there are two Romanian churches, and I was shocked. I visited them last year, and one of them, I think the oldest person was 32. Uh, Everybody was very, very young, so. And your church that isn't too dissimilar to ours in terms of size and so on. It's uh, similar, yeah. Started a ministry, uh, how long ago, called Project Ruth, and why did you start it, and where has it got to? Yeah, because our church is located in this poor area, which uh, has about 30 to 35% Roma people. Um, they didn't come to our church, and still most of them don't, but we, we found that the kids were in pretty bad shape, and uh, as we drew closer to them and invited them in our Sunday school program, uh, we realized that many of them were illiterate. So about 17 years ago, we started this ministry called Project Ruth. Uh, In the beginning, it was young people from our church doing a little day center before church programs, and then it became formalized, and now we have a school called the Ruth School, which is fully accredited and... uh, there are about 180 or 170 children in this school. And when we think of Project Ruth, as we do uh, through the year, what, what would you like us most to pray for? What, what would you like to be at the forefront of our minds? Uh, two things, really. One of the, the issues is the issue of resources. But I don't mean only money here. It's also human resources and also ideas to deal better with a community which is a, a challenging community, because, for example, education is available in Romania, but uh, part of the problem is that the families of these children are not educated, and therefore they are not an encouragement for their children. And finding a solution for that is not easy, as the families have such a huge influence in the life of a child. And uh, the other one is, uh, I would like uh, for Project Ruth to develop more um, ministry side, 
we have developed a, a leadership training program for Roma church, um, they're not pastors really, but church workers called the Gypsy Smith Leadership Training Program. So we would like to um, connect more our charitable work, uh, our social ministry, with some church ministry to help develop Roma churches in Romania. So these are the two main things. And just about you personally, uh, you're now Mr. Baptist in Romania, aren't you? We're not worthy. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Uh, well, I, I'm Mr. Baptist because I'm a third-generation Baptist, or fourth, I think. So, uh, Last year, we had, uh, in Romania, we have uh, every four years some elections in the Baptist Union, and last year we had elections, and I took the job as president of the Baptist Union of Romania, which I really am not, I'm doing it as, more as a volunteer. It is a job if, if one wants to take it. I, I just was elected, but I didn't want to take the job, but... <laughs> So uh, I travel a lot around the country. We have about 1,800 churches in Romania, and uh, officially we have about 130,000 Baptists, but there is also a Hungarian convention in Romania, so there are less Romanian Baptists. And uh, in one year, I think I visited the 13 associations twice. So I've been a lot on the road and a lot away from the church, so uh, our church has been... uh, gracious so far with me <laughs> and uh, pray for the work there and uh, I think Romania uh, is is the third largest uh, Baptist group in Europe after Ukraine and the UK percentage wise probably better because we are a smaller country however uh, because of this diaspora uh, which has taken a lot of people from our churches Churches have been formed in this country. I I mentioned two in London. There there are some in Ireland. But a lot of churches in Spain, Italy, and Austria where there are very, very few Baptists and Evangelicals. Mm -hmm. So we would like to turn this loss for us in a gain for the kingdom if uh, this would become um, uh, kind of more evangelistic-minded. The problem is with uh, churches in diaspora, they tend to be very inward-looking, and they create little ghettos. So we are trying to motivate them, but it's not so easy. So pray for that. We certainly will. Uh, Otti, why don't you just introduce uh, the group that's come with you, yes. and then they're going to lead us in two pieces of music. Yes, so as, as we mentioned, as uh, Simon mentioned, um, many of them are children of the people who came so many years ago, and I think it's best for them to just say their name. We are all from the same church. In our church, the orchestra is 30 or 40 members strong. We have... Um, uh, mandolin school every two or three years. It depends on how many people are interested. It runs for six months, and then um, you take an exam, and then you join the orchestra. It used to be very, very famous in Transylvania. Many churches had mandolin orchestras and brass bands and choirs. Uh, now the mandolin orchestras are not so uh, uh, much in, in vogue, but uh, we have kept this tradition, and on Sunday evening, every Sunday evening, uh, a much bigger orchestra plays in our in our church. So maybe the the ladies should say first their names and then uh, the orchestra, and then they can play. I think you had gone through all the approvals, so I want to congratulate you for a wonderful building here. Um, I was amazed uh, yesterday when we drove at night and we saw it, but today I went around to visit the room, so it's a superb building. So may the Lord bless you and uh, may you use it for the kingdom and for uh, bringing more people
into the kingdom. Um, please receive the greetings from uh, our congregation, from members, uh, from my father, um, who is now 83. He doesn't preach anymore, but uh, he comes to church to keep the order of the old Baptist tradition. So, uh, to the dismay of some of the younger, uh, <laughs> but um, it's um, uh, we, we rejoice that God has uh, allowed us in that part of Romania to be a witness. And we treasure the fellowship and the links that we have uh, with your congregation. Um, my um, message today um, is an encouragement to reflect together on uh, the issue of Christian identity. Um, when I was here before, I told you about a friend of mine who is a monk in a monastery near Bucharest. His name is Jerome. And uh, Jerome, I have known Jerome since I was 18, so that makes it about 30 years. And uh, I've learned many, many way, many things uh, from Jerome, who is an Orthodox monk. And um, among them was his uh, kind of attitude uh, towards the vows he has taken. You know, when, uh, when you go into a monastery, you really have a change of identity. You do about two years of apprenticeship, um, and after that, you are renamed um, as, a, as a monk with a new name. So he lost his old name, and he was given this name Jerome in a ceremony there, and he, he took three vows. One is a vow of poverty. Uh, he had to give up everything he had. One is a vow of chastity. He had to kind of promise that he will uh, live a clean and pure life. And one is a vow of obedience, and that's an obedience to the church and to the abbot directly there. But I remember once uh, visiting him in his cell, and Jerome uh, had all kinds of funny stories, but at one point he pulled a bottle of brandy from under his bed, and uh, he showed it to me and he said, uh, brother, without temptation there is no spiritual growth. <laughs> and I said, well, that's... Uh, you know, it makes sense. It's kind of, uh, and uh, I looked uh, closer to the bottle, and it was, you know, half empty. <laughs> and I said, "But Jerome, what what has happened?" Uh, he said, "Well, you know, I just look at it. I said, God forbid, God forbid, and then put it back, and I kind of grow spiritual." I said, "Yeah, but this bottle is not sealed. It's half over. Well, so once in a while, I yield to temptation." <laughs> the issue of identity is not a, a simple issue. Um, today we hear of people stealing identities. Now it's a, it's a big issue. I remember watching once on the news a big economic forum a few years ago, and uh, someone had stolen Bill Gates and Bill Clinton's credit card <laughs> numbers, and they flashed them on these screens. There, some probably some people who were trying to show off. Um, so we are concerned about that. But identity is an issue also for Christians. For all of us who want to live as followers of Christ in today's world, um, it's a bit like a cross-cultural experience, or it should be. Um, and according to Paul, who talks about this, uh, it's uh, normal to be like that since our citizenship is in heaven. That's what, what Paul says. Uh, in the text that we heard read before from uh, the book of Isaiah, and uh, in the chapter before that, and some texts, some verses after that, the prophet describes a situation in which the people of God face the challenge to rediscover their identity. Um, 
if this sounds obvious, we learn that sometimes the obvious is not as obvious as we think it is. The very people whose identity was defined by receiving God's call, by following uh, God's leading for freedom from slavery in Egypt, were now to be challenged to be in slavery again in Babylon, in captivity. And um, we know from other parts of the Bible what happened. Um, Although in the beginning they resented Babylon, you remember the psalmist uh, said, um, uh, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? It seems that when they were taken captives, their captors tried to have them sing, and they didn't really like to sing for their captors. We we are not at home, we don't want to sing at home. Uh, We are not on on a travel uh, that we wanted to go on, but we were taken to travel there. But it seems that when they returned from captivity, uh, they took many of the things of Babylon with them, back to to their own country. And um, um, it, it, uh, it, it seems that also they were influenced by their religion. Why not, we would ask. Because after all, according to the religion of the time, the gods of the conqueror must have had something about them since they had their people win a victory. But the same question remains relevant for us today. This why not um, is also heard today when the scriptures challenge us not to be to conform to the image of this age, but to be transformed. Why not? And to address this issue of a challenged identity, we learn from the text that Israel had to move in a certain direction, and I believe that so do we when we think of our Christian identity. So, first thing, uh, Israel had to remember that God, their God, is not indifferent. He continues to be interested in the fate of his people. Uh, One of the things God's people quickly learned in Babylon was that the system took care of their needs. At the beginning, they saw only the negative side, the control issues, but after a while, they realized that there were also benefits to be in Babylon, who was the the, the biggest power of the time. There was no need to walk by faith in Babylon, because as long as you did what was required from you, the system took care of you. It offered stability, comfort, and even religion. And something amazing happened. The people whose identity was shaped by faith in God began to like the system. Gone were the days when they had to trust God to feed them manna in the desert every day. You remember, when they went to the desert, God gave them manna to eat. But the manna was good only for one day. Some people tried to hoard, to save, and, you know, say maybe tomorrow when others don't have what, what to eat, maybe we'll open, open a little shop and make some, uh, something on the side. Or maybe we'll have for ourselves more. But they discovered the next day that everything was spoiled. So they they had to walk by faith. Well, the system took care of that uh, and even had their own version of fast food. They had McDonald's, they have Asda, they have Tesco. There's no need to wait for the manna. You just go and fill up. The system uh, takes care of you. Gone were the days when they had to rely on God's miracles to see their enemies vanished in the seas. When the Egyptian army chased them and they were right there by the sea, God parted the waters, the people of God walked through, and the Egyptians were swallowed by the sea. But now they're in the biggest power of the world. There was no need for any defense miracles. God, the system took care of them. 
Gone, gone were the days when they had to follow God and his leading uh, during the day through a cloud and at night, you remember, a pillar of fire. Well, now they had GPS. The system had GPS. So you don't need uh, pillars of fire. You need clouds. You just look at the GPS. The system took care of you. So now that they were going to be set free by their captors, the threat of losing the system was frightening. Now they had to take care of themselves. What will they do? So they had to remember that their existence as such, as people of God, was due to God's initiative. Yes, they were called to be his people. The text says, he made them and formed them in the womb. Because of that, they were commissioned to act in a certain way and create a different kind of world, a different kind of society. The society that God wanted to be an example. God called them to be like that. To be witnesses for the kind of world he wanted to see. And although they failed again and again and again, in their obedience to God, he remained faithful to them. And the word of the prophet uh, was that they did not need to fear. God was there for them. God was waiting for them. The system of their captors was not going to help them anymore. But God comforts them with the thought that he is the one who has the initiative in drawing them to what he desires them to be. They need to grasp the fact that God is God and man is man. The two cannot be confused. In the days of the captivity, the system was playing the role of God. But in the days of freedom, they need to remember that God called them to be his people and that he gave them the promise of always being with them. We experienced this a little bit in Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. Communism was very bad, but many people felt that it offered stability. And many people disliked what happened after communism. Not the fact that the police was not so mean, not the fact that we didn't have secret police, not the fact that we couldn't travel, uh, travel, but the stability. Everybody had a job. Everybody knew what their place was, was gone. So people were afraid about this. So in this new situation, not only did they understand that their existence as people of God is connected to God's calling, but also that God is able to keep his promises. And he can always surprise them by doing a new thing. And it is often the doing of a new thing that is the big problem with us. We can cope pretty well with a planned and with a to-be-expected part of our lives, but surprises are not so easy. If they are good, we cherish them, but we fear what could be bad surprises, all of us. The question for the prophet is whether the people of God can cope in this new situation of freedom. Are these days of choice and responsibility going to be good surprises, or will they bring pain and suffering for the people of God? How will they handle it? And God's word comes in the previous chapter in verses 16 to 19a. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea a path through the mighty waters who drew out the chariots and horses together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffled out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. In other words, my people, remember what I did for you when you were slaves in Egypt. I can and will do the same thing because I'm God and not man. A metaphor is used in the text to illustrate the promise. 
This is the image of the desert being brought back to life through the presence of water. I know that water is uh, rather abundant here. I, had, I just came from Texas uh, 10 days ago, and uh, in this place, uh, Midland, they had the worst drought in the last 90 years. And uh, farmers were very upset because they lost all their cotton crop this year because of, because of that. And uh, they were telling me there that when it rains around this city, which is largely an oil uh, uh, city, um, it, everything is just tumbling weeds and kind of like a desert. But they say when it rains there, everything comes to life. All the seeds that lay dormant in the, in the sand just come to life and it's full of color. And this is the image which God gives them through the prophet. Um, there will be a new thing which God is doing. It's like the water flowing through the desert. When God came to this world in the person of Christ, he did a new thing. It was such an unexpected act that John tells us he came to his own, but his own knew him not. We are so reluctant to be God to give God credit for being able to be God. We really think that we can do a better job in designing a job description for God. After all, that is what theologians are trained to do, make God fit the system. And really, we need to pause and reflect whether in our lives we don't do this involuntarily, whether in our lives uh, we don't need to say to God, God, you are God, you are in control. And although the system provides stability, really we know that only you can do a new thing in my life, in the life of our church, in the life of people around us. But they needed to also remember that their identity as the people of God was forged in their relationship of, with God. Not only did they have to remember that God is still interested God is not just distant and had forgotten them. But they needed to remember that their own identity is linked with their relationship with God. In captivity, they were defined as aliens. But as time went, they became accustomed with this new and although not promised land. And some of them even learned the ways of, of Babylon, and some of them have become successful. And slowly, a new identity emerged, defined in relations to the things around them. The, in, in the relation to the system. This was inevitable in a sense. But they should have remembered, however, that as the people of God, the call of God came to them as a personal call, not as things, not as a system. God is a person, and we see that uh, in the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in an eternal relationship with one another. So when God calls us, He calls us to a personal relationship which defines us when God called Israel, he called them to a relationship. He called them to realize that they are persons and not things. Their identity was in this personal relationship with God and in their relationship with one another as those who form the community of the people of God. The, the system of their captors, and for that matter, all the systems, replaced that with a new ideology which was the religion of empire. A new story. It was the story of success of the empire, not the story of walking with God. And also, a new certitude. The certitude of the things the system provides, not the certitude of having faith in walking with God. The problem is that when the system goes, all of these go. 
So Israel must remember that their relationship with God is how it is, and they need to recover the understanding that they belong to God. And it's a beautiful part here, verse 5, if you read from Isaiah 44. It says that one will say, I belong to the Lord. So suddenly, this, uh, this challenges the people of God, and they, they remember. So they remember and said, oh, but I belong to God. So this, this challenge um, um, learn, uh, teaches them that religion is not sufficient to cope with this new situation. The system is not sufficient. The, uh, the, they, they need to remember that they belong to God. And this is a big challenge for Christians today. In the midst of our systems, of our ideologies, of our things, of our fears, of our quests, can we truly say, I belong to the Lord. I am God's. Can we truly say this morning, I belong to God. Israel Israel also needs to recover their history. And the verse goes on to say that others were called by the name of Jacob. That was their history. They, They rediscovered their identity as the people of God and the history of their walk with God. Not as part of the system. The system had replaced their faith with religion and ideology and the story of their walk with God with the story of the success of the empire. But they should know better, and so should we, that their story and our stories of journeying with God are better. Not because they command more success, but because they are real stories of life. They are not counterfeit, fabricated stories or propaganda which the system provides. It is also interesting that the story seems to indicate that when they realize this identity, when some people say, I belong to God, and other people uh, say, my name is Jacob, actually my history is Jacob, some other people around saw that witness. If If you read the text, it says, some wrote to their hands, some wrote in their hands, Let's, let's look at the text, uh, because it's, 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 I think it, it's wonderful. Um, verse 5 and 6. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still, another will write on his hand, the Lord's. Some interpreters say that those who write on their hands, the Lord's, are actually not Jewish people. But the people around who saw this awakening among the Jews, some will say, oh, I belong to God. Some will say, oh, my name is Jacob. I have a history with God. And other people seeing this emerging identity in these captors realize that their faith is authentic, their walk with God is true. And they said, I also want to belong to the Lord. I want to belong to the Lord. So when God came to this world in the person of Christ, He did this new thing for us. Uh, He defined our identity uh, in a new way. This, to me, sounds very similar with what the Apostle Paul is writing. It is not that I live, but no Christ lives in me. As they live authentically, they're called to be the people of God. They do not only discover that they have God, have a God whom they can trust, but also that they have a story and they have a hope and they have a message who is recognized and desired by others because it's genuine, authentic. Yes, they discover, as the Blues Brothers did long, long after that, 
that they are on a mission from God. Not because they planned to be on one, not because they set out to conquer the world, but because they responded to God's call and allowed themselves to be defined as persons who belong to the Lord. A new identity. And where does this lead them? This leads them to the last thing they need to remember. That as they discover this new identity, the only thing they can do is worship God. And this is what we do this morning. We realize that we are the people of God. We realize that we belong to the Lord. And all we can do is to worship Him. God is to be worshipped because He is the true King and the Redeemer. Yes, the system gave them things, religion, comfort. But this cannot be compared with the life God wants to give them. Like rivers in the desert. Like the presence of His Spirit. God is the one who redeems them from every situation, and he is their true king. Therefore, he alone deserves to be worshipped. He reminds them by saying, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. There is not God, no God like our Lord. When Jesus came to show us God, the scripture says that in him dwells the fullness of of God. There is no God like our God who showed himself to us in Jesus Christ. This is the radical challenge that Christianity brings to modern society, to current political system, to economical solutions, to social engineering, who often claim to be our gods. Well, it is all good and well. Israel and now we realize that there is no God like our Lord. We are reminded that there is hope even when the system fails. But where do we go from here? Well, the preacher says, this is pretty good stuff to be included in a sermon. Well, the politician says, this is pretty good stuff to be included in my ideology. Maybe more people will vote for me if I talk like this. Well, the merchant says, we can do t-shirts, armbands, stickers, and we create all these win-win situations. Everybody is happy, and I make some money. But the word of God comes as a challenge to the people of God. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? And the answer comes in the same words. No. There is no rock. I know not one. We are called to be witnesses for a new world of justice, of peace, a world where people live out God's love. And I think that this was the challenge for the people of God then, and it is for us today. The true challenge of Christian identity. The challenge to say, I know no other rock but God, and I belong to the Lord. My entire identity, my entire way of thinking, and my entire way of acting and understanding things is built on this rock. It is not a triumphalism of Christianity but the genuine living out of Christian identity which speaks with authentic power in all ages. And hopefully when people would see this kind of witness, they will be so moved that they will come and would say to us, I also want to write on my hand, I belong to the Lord. And may God help each one of us to rediscover our Christian identity afresh every day as we work with God and turn it into such a powerful witness that others will want to claim it too, uh, and would want to know God as their God and Jesus Christ as their Savior. Amen.
Let's pray for a moment, shall we? Recognize our own ease, the ease with which we trust the system, the ease with which we trust the things around us to make us feel secure, the way we look to things to help us feel that need to belong, and yet your word calls us to a greater and better way. We pray that we would know what it is to have your name written on our hearts as well as our hands. We pray that we would be uh, those who put our trust above all else in the one who is the rock. The system will come and go. Ideologies will fall. This world will pass away. But our God, the rock, forever. Lift our gaze. Lift our hearts. May we be part not of the story of a nation, but may we be part of the story of our God that transcends nations, that transcends generations and time, that transcends race and language. So may all come may all come through our lives, through our witness, and write on their own hands and write on their hearts. They belong to the Lord. To that end, we pray for all of us that you would be our vision, O ruler, king over all. Let's stand and sing our final hymn.